0: One of the key principles in emergency management is unity of command, unity of information. When there's a meteorological crisis happening, we don't need 100 industry providers providing safety information. We need an authoritative source. And so uh, when it comes to safety, I think federal, local, state needs to be the central focal point for information. Welcome to the Triple Point podcast, a podcast for those
1: working at the intersection of weather and climate, technology and society. We focus on innovators and leaders working to make our communities safe and resilient in the face of a dynamic
0: and ever-changing world. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff Cunningham. And I am Ryan Harris. And in this, our ninth episode, Jeff and I talk about the top four questions we get when people learn we are meteorologists and later dissect the latest Twitter buzz on extreme heat maps in Europe. But the real focus of this episode starts just after the 15 minute mark, where we focus on the public sector and charitable organizations providing weather and climate services at the national and multilateral level. We hope you enjoy the show. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Thanks for going well. I'm taking a slightly different
1: tack today. From my section of news, I found some good articles.
0: Oh, you're going to nerd out on this podcast? Well, a
1: little bit. I mean, it's kind of all related to what we talked about. Breaking out the BAMs, are you? But first, I have a question for you. What's the number one question that people ask you when they found out that you were a meteorologist?
0: Oh, are you on TV? Yes.
1: <laughs> number one question. Or no, num- yes. Yeah. Oh, you're like Jim Cantori
0: or you're like Al Roker. Yeah. What, ch- what channel are you on? And then the second question I get when I tell them that I'm in the Air Force, they're like, oh, are you a pilot? <laughs> so I disappoint them twice because I, I'm not Jim Cantori and I'm not a pilot. What's the second question besides the pilot one? Let me turn that around. Let me ask you that question. What's the second question you get?
1: What do you think about global warming
0: <laughs> climate change? <laughs>
1: Actually, I don't get that one as frequently anymore as I used to. I mean, I've always gotten the are you a meteorologist? I'm actually
0: working on an article about this. right. Yeah. I mean, I think people are connecting with the fact that, you know, the climate's changing and we got to adapt to it. The big debate that, that many people have, how much of an impact do humans have on that?
1: Well, I've personally modified my stance. I'm still not a what I'd call, you know, on, on one extreme or the other. I mean, obviously things are changing you polar bear lover, Come on. Yeah. So tree hugger. No, I mean, like it's sort of naive to think that we don't influence the systems, right? I mean, obviously if you add an input to a system, it's going to modify it. There's actually kind of an interesting article and I really didn't get to read it I wanted to, Oh, it's just, you know, I don't know if you've noticed this, but bam's is like a lot thinner now. They don't actually give you the full article. They publish everything online. And then this is like a sampler.
0: But yeah, I, I this, don't even get the hard copy anymore.
1: Well, I decided to reinstate my art copy because I wasn't reading it at all. You know, online. You're, you're, you're contributing
0: to global warming by accepting the hard copy versions. Of those,
1: no, right? I think that there's some forest <laughs> management, uh, practices that are actually sustainable, but anywho, so there's this article that says, can you hear me now? That it's warmer. 55 miles per hour. The average increase in the speed of sound by the end of the century in the Greenland Sea and a section of the Atlantic Ocean under greenhouse gas emission scenario, known as the business as usual scenario. According to a new study published in the Earth's Future, as water gets warmer underwater, sound waves moves faster and lasts longer before dissipating, and a team led by Alice. I can't say her last name of Memorial University of Newfoundland and Labrador is it Newfoundland or Newfoundland and Labrador
0: Labrador, Labrador, oh boy, <laughs> we need to get you culturized up in Canada. Have you ever listened to the comedian Jim again? Oh, he's hilarious. He's got a hilarious skit on Canada and all the different city names and how they came up with them. And can I finish my point? Yeah, please do. Did I interrupt you? You're I'm sorry. No, it's okay. No, this is
1: good. For every for our audience, Ryan and I have been discussing the definition of an interruption. You know, am I interrupting him or just making the conversation go in a new place? And I think we're just taking it into a new place. All right. Anyway, let me go on to my next article. So this other article in here says, to warn or not to warn. Factors influencing National Weather Service tornado warning decisions. Wait, what? They don't just use science. It says here. Importantly, meteorologists' warning decisions were also influenced by personal factors. I
0: right? think you're getting into sociology. E.g.,
1: a liberal tornado warning philosophy and for social a communal, sciences and communal factors asking for a second opinion. You forecasted, right? You read a hub, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you write a yeah, forecast. Hub. And I remember there were always those forecasters that always issued. I think that's what they're talking about.
0: I think Nate Silver's book from over a decade ago, and the name's escaping me right now, but the whole book's about predictions, using data and information for predictions. And the only bright spot in the book about predictions, because he talks about political, economic, and then weather predictions, the only bright spot in the whole book in terms of the community that you know, knows how to do it best is weather prediction because we at least have physics to bound and govern our predictions. But part of that book though, talked about how broadcast meteorologists sometimes overinflate the chances of rain so that they can interact with their community. Twitter versus is a buzz,
1: particularly with this latest heat wave of broadcast meteorologists changing the
0: colors of their maps to be hotter. Is this true? My wife just brought this up to me and I said, Show me these posts because I'm not on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn, but I'm not on Twitter. And so she showed me the image. This is in Europe. It showed a Germany map in 2017 of higher temperatures than what were shown. It's a very similar map today. So the 2017 map just had the temperatures. There was no color shading at all. And then the 2022 map had like red everywhere. And so this Twitter buzz is, you know, I think people trying to say that they're using colors to scare people. And I, I think it's a distraction, to be honest. The argument or the or the colors? The argument that broadcasters are overinflating the temperature depictions that they're showing. I will say this, news and media and anything that you can get for ratings, I get it. Like that is happening. There is hyperbole happening. But to say that, you know, they're using a red map to scare the, you know, what out of people, um, I, I, I think that's a distraction from what's actually going on because when you look at the data and like I said, I'm, I'm working on an article right now. The UK on July 19th set a record, they had never had a temperature above 40 degrees Celsius, which is about 104 degrees Fahrenheit. And they set that record by a degree and a half, a full degree and a half Celsius more than the previous record set three years ago. So I mean, I I've seen the data, the temperatures are warming. And I think as scientists, whether we're in the broadcast sector or in the government sector, or whatever the case is i think it's incumbent upon us to be objective i don't know you um, sound like
1: kind of preachy to me right so well
0: i'm a i'm a preachy <laughs> kind of guy
1: all right so I, I in the same vein of what we're talking about because this is the article right you know it says to warn or not to warn factors influencing right so we said so it's at least for tornado warnings it's influenced by personal factors such as whether you have a liberal not political but you know whether you warn a lot or not so that's like your bias and communal factors asking for a second opinion so that's that's the decision of whether to issue a warning or not we just kind of got off on the colors of maps and stuff like that and one of the things i did in grad schools is i spent a lot of time trying to make sure i had the right color scales on the graphics that i produced one was partly so they're accessible
0: so that people that were colorblind could see the like me you're colorblind I didn't know that so that's a third question I get asked is when when they find out that I can't see colors all that great they're like how'd you become a meteorologist <laughs> <laughs> how can you look at a radar yeah. well I can
1: see differences so there's been a, a bit of work lately in the last couple of decades of like trying to get color schemes that are accessible that people can see and distinguish colors you know it's not not just colors but intensities and stuff like that so Did the media in many of these cases just change the way they're trying to interact with their audience? Is there some legitimate science behind it or is it sensationalism, right? Because advertisers, and we have a century plus of since advertisement has become a thing of data showing that you can elicit response out of people to buy things and do things. You know, there's a behavioral science there, part of this, right? Like, it's like anything. It's like nuclear power, right? It could be for good or it could be for bad. (laughs) Same thing with behavioral science and
0: influence, right? So how do we, where do you, what's the line? There's definitely psychology here. Um, And, you know, the broadcasters and anyone trying to sell a weather product has to use some level of psychology to connect with the consumer, connect with the viewer. One of the questions that I asked when my wife brought this up was, What is the context here? You know, I think in all of this vitriol, let me use the word that you were used last week on all this vitriol, I think the context is missing and pundits and others, when they purposely remove the context, I think that's a big reason for this. So the context I was asking about with this map change is, you know, I would have an issue perhaps if the color shading in 2017 was a different representation than today. But that wasn't the case in in this map. It was temperatures without color shading to all of a sudden there were temperatures with yellow to red shading. And, And my point here is, did a producer come in and say, hey, I don't know what the temperature is in these valleys If you put this in a color scheme, I can tell what the temperatures are in these valleys, if you just have numbers on a map, you don't have a whole lot of context. If you're not at that area. We don't really
1: actually know what happened in those cases, but all right. So let me, let me go on. It's obviously Bams had a theme going on here, but so this is really interesting. So the next article exploring broadcast meteorologists and personal branding after a hurricane crisis. says how broadcast meteorologists distinguish themselves from others and connect with their viewers is part of their personal branding which can affect how well their messages to viewers are received so that to me implies obviously trust is a
0: big deal right well what do you think jim cantori's brand is he may listen to this you know and if he does we'd love to have him on there's two things that i think of
1: well three don't insult him because if we want him on You know, you're not going to get them on to be insulted.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, this isn't an insult at all. So the first thing I think of when I think of Jim Cantori, anytime that Jim Cantori and the Weather Channel truck shows up along a location, you know, they don't want Jim Cantori and his truck showing up because that's where the hurricane's coming. So he's excited to be in the weather, but it's not just tropical. You know, the second thing that comes to mind when I think about Jim Cantori is on camera live in a I think it was a Lake Effect snow squall and you had lightning in a snowstorm, which does not happen often. It takes a very special snowstorm to get that. And he was just like a kid in a candy store witnessing that lightning. And his excitement came through. And I think so why did you get into weather? What caused you to want to be a meteorologist? Everyone has a story. Well, quite frankly, I watched the weather
1: channel a lot growing up. The March uh, 13th, 1993 superstorm was a big deal. You were in northern Georgia, yep. right? So you got you got all the I snow. Was, we got a foot of snow. Well, that was the year that my grandparents were at a mobile home in central Florida, which is, you know, not the best place to be in a tornado. Anyway, they were sitting on their back porch and the tornado picked up the house the mobile home and moved it 40 feet with them in it didn't destroy it they survived it was an amazing you know survival thing i digress but you asked the question how did i get into weather well i actually became an engineering mechanics major first because i had a really good instructor and i was like oh this is really cool stuff and then i was sitting in arabic class and a buddy of mine said hey why don't you come over to meteorology my buddy good lifetime friend
0: now invites me over to meteorology i'm like oh this is great The reason I asked that question is the personalities like Jim Cantore, like Al Roker, like Ginger Zee, those are often the first experiences that budding meteorologists see. And I think Jim Cantore's energy is infectious, as goofy as he might be sometimes. His energy and his knowledge is infectious and it gets people energized to maybe want to be a meteorologist. So I grew up in the Midwest. My dad would flip on the weather channel instead of cartoons Saturday morning. And that's how I got interested in the weather. And I think if you talk to most meteorologists today, most knew they wanted to be a meteorologist when they were a kid. So anyway, so what's, what's your tie-in? What do you think caused that transition to allow industry to go beyond what the government provides? Money. I think the last thing we said at the last episode
1: was that a lot of times the instrumentation was really expensive. Like who could mobilize all the people to be observers in the 1800s? Really probably the U.S. Army, right? There were naval ship logs. They knew a lot about the weather and then the army. So those are the biggest entities or organizations that can mobilize, you know. And I I do believe that there were citizen scientists, too, recording measurements and
0: stuff. But then when the telegraph came along, that's when weather observations could explode. Right. And then you get to the satellite age. You didn't have commercial industry that had the resources to launch their own satellites. And remember, the reason why we're able to launch our own satellites the technology that did that was because of war technology that we generated during World War II. Yeah. I mean, and rockets in, against the Soviet Union, you know, nu- nuclear threat. Right. So, you know, the space race, those were national level capabilities. And so I think technology, which is one of the three parts of our triple point, right? Technology has advanced enough to make data in IT ubiquitous and affordable for you know companies to be able to launch and deploy their own satellites and so i think between that and data storage and cloud computing those have been the major game changers in the last 20 years that have allowed commercial industry to scale beyond and we'll talk about the commercial industry in future episodes but now, back on the government for a second, just looking at a couple of the numbers, NOAA's budget this year, $6.9 It's almost a 30% increase from the last two years. About half of that $6.9 billion is the National Weather Service and NESDIS, which helps manage NOAA's satellites, is also their climate center. DOD has about a half billion dollars a year rolled up into METOC support. NASA's $2 billion a year. And then when you scale internationally, you know, the Met office in the UK, Aussies have their Bureau of Meteorology and the Germans, for instance, have Deutsche Wetterdienst, which is basically their version of national weather service. And so they are all very similar in that they're providing national level capabilities for consumers for safety of information and for industry to tailor to their own purposes, whether it's energy or agriculture, so on. So does it all work? Are the constituents
1: of these different nationalities happy with what they're doing?
0: I think the weather service is good at the state of the science, the state of the meteorological science. I think where our community has struggled is the communication of warnings and the communication of uncertainty. That's something that the weather services really tried to, to get after for, you know, at least since we've been in the field and we saw this in the air force, you know, we had weather warnings that we would transmit to the command post. And sometimes that wouldn't always reach the maintenance workers on the airfield because of a break in communication. We're also very nerdy. Um, or we have been in the past about describing the weather when we really need to be focused on the impacts. So that this begs the question a little bit in my
1: mind, is the federal government still the best arm to communicate those warnings? We just cited a bunch of facts about how much money they get. It's in the billions, right? Billions of dollars. If we freed that up and gave it to the taxpayers back, would commercial enterprise Use that
0: money better some other way. Well, I'm not an economist, but I did stay at a Holiday Inn Express, so I'll give you my my two cents. I think it's a balance. So you need at least some investment to provide a national level baseline capability because let's face it, the private industry would not be able to do what they do without what the national government is able to do bring in terms of observations, prediction, and so forth, at least not right now, maybe later down the road, there'll be an industry, a corporation that pops up that does everything observing satellite information, assimilation of that data processing, numerical weather prediction, climate. What the national level does is provide a baseline collection, storage capability processing of all that. Right now, private industry uses the baseline forecast that NOAA provides, you know, whether that's the a AWARF model, the weather research forecast model, you know, the high resolution rapid refresh models that are hourly or the longer range global forecast system, GFS models. So I don't think industry right now at least can do everything on their own. And the last thing I'll say on this um, is... And you hit on this last week a little bit, one of the key principles in emergency management is unity of command, unity of information. When there's a meteorological crisis happening, we don't need hundred industry providers providing safety information. We need an authoritative source. And so uh, when it comes to safety, I think federal local state needs to be the central focal point for information.
1: That's a general role
0: that's accepted for the federal government. And I don't see any issues
1: with that. I think it's the actual execution of delivering that message sometimes where the challenges are, whether that be through technical means of a website or an application, the government tends to fall short in my opinion on delivering those services well, it can deliver the basics of those services. Well, we've had such rapid transition of technology over the years, ironically, where the government was pushing in those very edge cases of delivering satellites to space for various things or high performance computing. I mean, the government's been on the edge of many of these technologies, but the commercial sector has overtaken it in a number of areas, including, you know, artificial intelligence, including
0: web, not just websites and web delivery, but just the way that people consume information. Governments are slower than industry today to adopt technology. And it's not just the weather industry, or it's not just the weather sector. You know, we see that across uh, IT and software and everything like that. I mean, the acquisition process is laborious within the federal government. There's just a lot of barriers that prevent the federal government from being agile and nimble. Congress, I think has seen this as well. One thing that is in. The budgetary processes for NOAA, for DOD, are these commercial weather data pilot projects that Congress gives money to NOAA, gives money to DOD to work with commercial industry in areas where the technology is rapidly advancing, where the federal government can take advantage of that industry.
1: Yeah, it seems like there are some definite good things that the government can do to encourage commercial production of things.
0: Yeah, I think. The federal government's still going to be in the game for a while to develop, build satellites. We have commercial entities that are launching their own low earth orbiting satellites, LEO satellites. I don't know a whole lot of commercial entities though that are launching their own geostationary satellites like NOAA does for GOES, for instance. I think
1: the main point I wanted to make was that, you know, historically the government has provided a lot of the services for weather. Right. And it makes sense because a lot of the stuff, a lot of the things that we had to do to observe the weather were difficult. You either had to launch satellites. You had to communicate over long distances and there just weren't very many people or entities that could do that alone. Right. So the technology, the money was really the reason why the government was involved in a lot of weather observations and weather forecasting. Cost a lot of money. Took a lot of computing power. But the things that I've seen, both as I was leaving government service and continues today, is that governments are increasingly, you know, relying on commercial companies to provide this capability, whether that's observing, modeling, or or whatnot. And so as an example, I've got a couple of news articles from Space News, and uh, one of them was really interesting because it wasn't just the U.S. getting their commercial sector involved, but it was also China. China has actually been dumping quite a bit of money into their commercial sector to increase their observations. But in there, the, the news article also highlighted a couple of the, the U.S. companies like you've brought up before tomorrow.io, Planet IQ, and, uh, another company I wasn't familiar with, uh, Florida based called Acme, but apparently Acme Atron-O-Matic, vendor of my radar weather app, won FCC approval to launch satellites. To demonstrate technology for a constellation that they ultimately could include 250 satellites or more, but they don't really go into a lot of the details of what they're observing.
0: And it's then, hard uh, for me to it's hard for me to hear Acme and not think of the Looney Tunes <laughs> and Wiley Coyote building his satellite here. Yeah, no, right. So um, a little phenomena <laughs> here: <It's, laughs> the right. Muppets and the Looney Tunes. <laughs> You know, you're talking about satellites. One of the things that I was looking at here recently, we haven't really touched on it much, but we, we really should, because when we talk about talk about it, the environment all around, it's not just the terrestrial, the atmosphere, it's also space and the space environment produces hazards as well, that the weather community actually observes and tries to predict. We're actually heading into a solar maximum here in the next few years. And one of the interesting things that I read was that the weather service, solar experts have underpredicted the strength of the solar cycle. So it's a lot stronger. We're seeing a lot more geomagnetic storming and those kind of events, which impact the very satellites we're talking about. So I think those areas, they're still an outsized role for federal governments to weigh in on another article I read internationally, Southeast Asia. In Vietnam, the World Meteorological Organization worked with Southeast Asian countries to stand up a new flood guidance system that spans, you know, not just Vietnam, but Thailand, Cambodia, and Laos. And so that gets back to one of our original points about the national governments being there for safety. But you're absolutely right. I think the commercial sector is beginning to play more of a role. And I was wondering. You know could one day the local warnings that we receive could that be a contracted effort could that be a, an effort where you know there's a contract to help provide those watches and warnings i think we're going to see things shift as the the technology makes it easier for companies to develop their technologies
1: i mean if you look at the space industry you know the space industry is starting to commercialize That's been pretty successful. I don't know if you can declare success yet, but it has had some successes with SpaceX and uh, some of the other companies. There's also the UAS market, uh, unmanned aerial systems market is getting some commercialization. But then I was just looking at another news article This one through wind power engineering titled improving offshore weather forecasts with machine learning. And these energy providers, you know, are not looking necessarily to the government to provide them the wind forecasts needed to operate these wind farms that are offshore. They're actually going to, you know, a private company, StormGeo, and they're developing a model called the DELFI, so Delphi machine learning for offshore weather forecasting. Maybe some of the inputs into this model are some of the public data sets and public forecasting, but I think the service is
0: actually being provided by a commercial company to a commercial company. I think that's a model that commercial companies have followed is again, to ride the backbone of the federal systems weather service in terms of leveraging their observations that they collect, the climatology that they produce. And then the numerical weather modeling as a backbone, but then they're able to make it better with their own, in this case, machine learning. I don't think the federal government has ever touted its ability to specifically tailor their products and services to a a given sector. And I don't think that's their role. I think this is a case. I think this is the symbiotic relationship that we kind of talked about where there is somewhat of a, a partnership where. The federal government kind of provides that baseline of information do you see one day where a company is doing the entire end-to-end process of putting a forecast together the observations the collection of observations the assimilation of that data into a numerical weather model and then the dissemination and and then when you include the satellite information I, i think it could happen in our lifetime but it's hard for me to fathom right now that a company has the capital You know, a lot of times
1: we, we as people, right? Humans like to go to these binary responses, like it's either this or this, you know, and what I think we're seeing is government still is involved, you know, from their historical perspective, at least in the, in the US, Americans have generally accepted that there's a weather service, that there's taxpayer funded weather services, right? Environmental services. So what we're seeing is, is that government managers and Congress, although Congress is oftentimes instigating it and encouraging the government to do this, is taking some of that taxpayer funds and spending it on commercial sources of data, right? And this is just speculation on my part, but I think we'll continue to see an increase in that because I think some of that is successful. Now, there starts to become an argument of, okay, it's commercial data source. We're buying it. Who gets the data rights? Data rights becomes a real you know, is it, is it the taxpayer data or who gets to license that data? That can be a tricky conversation to have at a high level for the government.
0: But I, I do see some definite added value. Well, let's, let's, let's pull this apart for a second. I, I, I kind of look at this from like an emergency management kind of angle or lens. You know, when you have a crisis or a disaster from a natural hazard, let's talk about maybe a hurricane or, you know, significant flooding that we saw in Kentucky, or maybe wildfire. The way that the emergency management community does this is again, they, they look at this from a unity of command, unity of information. Let's say hypothetically that local communities contract out their own weather services, and in some case they are with some companies for certain hyperlocal weather services. Tomorrow.io for instance, is partnered with Hoboken, New Jersey, I believe. I'll have to find the article for the show notes, but let's say hypothetically that becomes ubiquitous across the the country and local governments are doing that. Well, if Hoboken, New Jersey contracts with one company, but Atlantic city contracts with a different company, when there's a crisis, let's say another hurricane Sandy rolls up the east coast and you've got these two different cities that are using these two different companies for their weather services. And then the emergency managers roll in from a. Life safety perspective. And that's who communities get the information from the emergency management community, not necessarily the weather service. The weather service provides that through the emergency managers. When there's a disparity in the information that they're providing those two companies, that creates a major issue. There is already enough uncertainty in weather information uh, that makes it very difficult for the emergency managers to provide that. And so I think there's a limit. I, I agree. I think we're moving in that direction where commercial industry can provide the government advanced capabilities on contract, but and, I think and there's more a, and more le- quickly in many cases. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think there's a limit. I think there's, there's at least in our country. Now there may be other countries around the world where maybe they don't have an infrastructure a national infrastructure that can handle that. And so a company can come in there and provide those services. The model that we have here in the States is not the model that every other country has, for instance, the UK, their met service is actually, it's a commercial entity that's partnered directly with the government, but they act as like a fee for service. So we. We could move towards a model kind of similar to that. Um, Yeah,
1: there's different models for different countries. I think the disaggregation I was referring to, which would happen locally, but also I was thinking more globally, right? You know, you have the Chinas of the world, the U.S., the different powers that are obviously not seeing eye to eye on things, and different nations are going to not allow other nations' data sources. I mean, we've seen this with some of the, you know, Chinese technology. The U S at a federal level has banned use of different, you know, Chinese technology. So I, I think we could see some disaggregation at the global level, uh,
0: of, of data, but also at the local level. I think when you expand the aperture just a little bit, when we talk about disaggregation and aggregation of data sources, so Pacific disaster center, for instance, their bread and butter is aggregation of data sources aggregation of authoritative data sources on all sorts of hazards natural hazards not just weather hazards but you know tsunamis earthquakes you name it and the services that they provide are meant for the emergency management communities worldwide but it again their bread and butter is, is aggregation they're not necessarily a multilateral organization like the UN but they partner with not just our government, they partner with other governments, you know, emergency management kind of communities. We haven't talked about this a whole lot, but maybe we could dive into it a little more in depth later, but NGOs, non-governmental organizations are out there providing some level of bridging the gap kind of services as kind of like a nonprofit. The Anticipation Hub, for instance, sponsored by the German Red Cross and the International Federation of the Red Cross, Red Crescent, IFRC. And so they, they help bridge the gap between, you know, prediction providers and and the communities that they support. And they're also working with the finance sector so that they can provide more anticipative warnings. We've also got what's called the climate risk and early warning system, cruise network, that's a multilateral organization to bridge the gap. And so there's just a lot of talk about providing anticipatory services to communities. I think at the end of the day, if we tie this back in for the safety of people, it takes a symbiotic relationship between governments, the private sector and nonprofits like NGOs. So one of the reasons why you and I wanted to talk about the different
1: sectors of weather and and climate economics, if you will, or or the economy or business, um, is, is we wanted to identify some of the gaps that could be explored, you know, for business opportunities and things like that. Hopefully part of our audience are young up and coming meteorologists or climatologists with some computer background or somebody that has an interest in solving some of these problems. If we've identified gaps, you know, presumably there's some entrepreneurs out there that want to solve some of the problems. You know, what are some of the things that could go
0: after? Well, I think. A commercial company would have to think about this from a dual use perspective. They could have something that serves maybe the federal government or local governments, but also serves maybe other businesses. One of the things that I think about is a known gap for the weather service is the ability to communicate effectively the risk and uncertainty of a a given weather event for given locations. Everybody's been into dashboards for the last 10 years, but you know, having dashboards or apps that are able to communicate that information effectively. We talked recently about the questions that I get asked about what I do. I would say the third or the fourth question I usually get asked is, well, what's your favorite weather app? I think that's a huge gap. I think there's a bunch of weather apps out there, but none of them are really great at everything. I mean, I use one app for my radar, but then for authoritative weather information, I'll go to the weather service. And and so there's, I don't know that that, that really exists.
1: So I, okay. Obviously you and I are weather professionals, so we do a lot of our own weather forecasting or we pretend to forecast like we're way
0: younger
1: <laughs> than we are, but so one of the things, um, so I have two apps that I use, I'm not going to call them out because we haven't gotten into company endorsements, <laughs> but uh, one of them is a radar app and it's really good. It uses the raw data. I mean, it's, this is the app that, you know, every actual, I use that weather, app. you know, every, every weather forecaster uses, well, maybe not every, but a lot of them, right. And because you can get to the, the raw data and do your interpretation and stuff like that. So I use that to identify actual severe weather threats and that sort of thing. So, you know, I, I can do the radar interpretation. I was telling you at the beginning of the episode, I have this weather station that in addition to the observations that I get from, it, I get the forecast, I mean, I haven't pulled the hood up to look under the, you know, the hood, but supposedly they are using machine learning and some other predictive capabilities to provide a forecast for my location. And in their app that goes along with it, they started adding other locations. I think that's because they have enough data from different surface stations, but they're also combining public data and other things to create these forecasts for places other than just your location. So however, they've merged that together in the back end, it's useful and it's pretty good and because in addition to just traditional weather observations, there's a lightning detection capability on it and it's not perfect. It's not all cloud the ground. I think there's some cloud the cloud strikes it detects. But when you work outside a lot, which we do around where I live, it's nice to get, hey, there's lightning in the area within 15 miles, within five miles, within one mile. And so having that enhanced awareness and that, I hate to use it because I think it's overused, that local forecast <laughs> is, I, it's, I think it actually works fairly well for setup that I have. Is there room for more innovation and improvements and stuff? Absolutely. But I, I think some companies are starting to deliver some actual increased value, you know, above and beyond the government, in my opinion.
0: Yeah. I think the advent of technologies, the use of machine learning, artificial intelligence, when I am looking at all these different companies that are providing weather and climate services across all the sectors, the large majority of them that are providing unique services are touting their own proprietary machine learning techniques. And the thing about, you know, machine learning is there are so many different ways to train data sets, to train models, prediction models. Um, And so it's an incubator that allows all these different companies to you know, come up with their own way of doing it. Now, what what I'm curious about is, you know, that of course, every company that I'm looking at, it says our model is the best model. And, and I'm just like, how do you measure who is actually providing the best? We need to forecast? do a technology
1: focus. You know, maybe, you know, we've, we've been experimenting with the different formats for our our podcasts. I think, you know, we have sector focuses for the next several episodes, I I think we need to do some technology focused ones. And I think we need to have an entire episode just on machine learning. You know, it's, it's really just a data model, right? Like it's a different way to do modeling. It's neither bad nor good, or it's just has, it has its pros and cons like physics based modeling. Right. So, but let's, let's save that for another podcast. One thing I'd like to do before we close Ryan is uh, extend a request to our audience to find out more about our podcast and also give us feedback and interact
0: with us. Sign up for our newsletter so you can get advanced notice of the newsletter or a new podcast being issued. You can also email us at triple point podcast at the number 81degrees.com. We really want to hear what folks in the community that listen to this, what they want to hear about, you know, we can banter all we want back and forth, but we want to hear what our community wants to hear about. Yep. No, it's
1: exciting. And you know, Ryan, we're starting to build an audience. Our weekly numbers are starting to go up. And so if you like this show, give us a five star rating on whatever podcast listener you're listening to. And that'll help get the word out. More people will see it. We appreciate your uh, listening to us.
0: Yeah. And uh, listen to us next week. We're going to talk about the utilities sector, I think, in our next show. And then we are lining up our next guest for the end of August to talk about the energy sector and wildfires and other things. So looking forward to that show as well. So it's been been fun talking to you, Jeff. Yeah, it's been great. Well, we hope you enjoyed today's Triple Point podcast. If you liked it, give us a shout on your favorite podcast station and tell your friends about it. Or you can email us at triplepointpodcast at the number 81degrees.com. Until next time, have a great week.